Hello, Edgar. Hello, Hegwar. How are you doing? Doing very well. It's been a while. We took a month off because of vacation. The summer. Did you have a good vacation? I did, indeed. What about you? Well, I, I did. Uh, not to go into too much detail, it was pretty tiring, though. Now I'm back at work, and this is uh, somewhat uh, my vacation. Uh-huh. <laughs> We're back, and what are we doing today? So today we are going to do the second follow-up podcast. Okay, so it's a follow-up to... To the first and second podcast. Okay, good. Let's go ahead. Okay, let's do that. My name is Grégoire Pierre. And this is Edgar Danielsen. Welcome to Discussions on Psychoanalysis. Before we start with people's questions or comments, I would like to start this second installment of the following podcast with first a general thank you to everybody who listened to us, or either tried or even better, listened to us until the end. Until the end of each podcast. Yeah, really, thank you. We are doing that for you and for you too. You would barely listen. We are doing this for you too. You're so kind. And I. <laughs> And I would like to start a little tradition. We'll see how it goes. If people are offended or not, we'll see. I would like to thank a special city. Thanks to SoundCloud, we have statistics of who listen to us. We don't know the people, but we have statistics of cities and countries. So the city with the fewest people who listen to us, but still listen to us, or clicked on it, we don't know for how long, maybe for just a few seconds, is Best Knoll Green in the United Kingdom, with five people, and we really wanted to thank them. We want to encourage them, if they don't know each other, they could find them yeah. themselves. It might be the same person <laughs> clicking five times. Or maybe. <laughs> thank you very much to people in Best Know Green for listening to us. Thank you, everybody in, in general. We are very touched, uh, very moved by um, the fact that more than um, a few People are listening to us. When um, I uh, started with the idea of uh, discussion on psychoanalysis and when we worked on it with Edgar, uh, we didn't expect more than 50 people and uh, we have uh, a lot more. So thank you. Would you mention other countries that are listening to us? I guess uh, next follow-up podcast. Okay. At some point, we mentioned that in psychoanalysis, uh, judgment is suspended. And someone wrote to us pointing out, is this really true? It depends on what the person means by true, but I guess in terms of the horizon of a treatment, where we would like to go with a patient, we start with the assumption, let's say, that it is an assumption and a good one, that we will try our best to suspend judgment. And that's why the fundamental rule that the patient will say everything and anything that comes to their mind applies. And from our side, meaning the analyst's side, we will listen without giving any way to one word to over another word. I guess in the horizon of the assumptions and the hope, judgment is suspended. 
I see what you're saying, and that on the other hand, I also feel like in some ways this would be the ideal. We're talking about a horizon, yes. The more we try to approach the horizon, the more we realize that we're not there yet. And so maybe the question would be how do we include, especially with the question of forgiveness, the fact that there will be a judgment. We can't help it. We are human. We can't really suspend our judgment. It's easy to think for situations where your patient will be, quote-unquote, on the good side. Mm -hmm. But how do you work with a pedophile? How do you work with a murderer? Mm -hmm. You will necessarily have judgment. And even in not uh, such extreme cases, mm -hmm. uh, let's say you have a patient and the patient is doing something and you're thinking, oh man, he or she's going to screw things over. Or yes. You can't help thinking about it and it's unlikely that your body language will not convey something. Two things come to mind. The first, when you offer the examples of a pedophile or anything that is extreme, those examples are usually presented to stir up judgment or to move something within us. And those are extreme examples. What do you mean they are here to stir up judgment? My point being that what is the percentage of our patients that come to session and say, I am a pedophile? or I murdered someone. Very little, if not inexistent for most of us. Yeah, very little. So if we're talking about the work we do on a daily basis, then when we present one example that is extreme, there is a desire to stir up judgment. And I say this of any person, for example, when politicians are talking about and giving examples about women's uh, reproductive rights, yeah. they would use e extreme examples. And what extreme examples do is to stir up. In fact, what these examples do, I think, is to promote this pleading in people. Okay. Because then we need to align ourselves with one of the extremes. So that's the first thing that I would like to say. The second thing is that the fact that I look at the horizon and say that I want to suspend judgment does not mean that I am exempt of judging. It means that I will strive to be non-judgmental in my intervention and interpretations. Of course, that requires a lot of self-reflection, which is, I think, the counterpart of what we're talking about. How do we include that, especially when we think about patients who come and the theme of forgiveness is very much at play? Again, I would like to focus on forgiveness as the working through of the pleading. So, mm -hmm. therefore, that would be the focus of my interventions, to help the patient. But you as a clinician. As a clinician, yeah. How do you include in your thinking, in how you behave with your patients, the fact that you are striving to be non-judgmental, mm -hmm. but still there will be judgments? Like when this question is at the heart of um, some sessions or some problematics, How do you think about that? What do you mean by judgment in that case? Without going to the extreme? Without going to the extreme, I could go back to the other example I gave, where you have a patient who all of a sudden tells you something and you think it's a bad idea. Yes, okay. For instance, oh, yesterday I met this guy and the guy is like this, like this, like that. And in your head, you're just like, oh no, this is exactly the same type of person who he or she complained about before. Oh, is this going to be... Um, I mean, you, you get anxious. or I don't know if you get anxious, but you can start thinking like, yeah. this is turning... Uh, this is going south. Mm -hmm. 
or I would say on the other side, like uh, how sometimes you work with a victim mm -hmm. and uh, how do you work with the fact that we will judge, but in this sense, positively, probably we will be uh, compelled to push the person into a place of being good mm -hmm. because he or she has been a victim of something. Like, you know, this, so then we, we judge. It's not a judgment um, that people are... Um, maybe thinking about but we still are putting uh, our, our ideas onto this i guess what you're saying is that the judgment we are making is by stating a choice by saying this is my choice yes this is how i perceive things we're walking mm -hmm. um, on shaky ground because what i perceive or my perception of reality might not be my patient's yeah. perception of reality So I want to get into my patient's inner world. Yeah. What immediately comes to mind is self-restraint and self-reflection. My intervention is propelling the treatment forward, meaning is my intervention allowing the patient to be more nuanced, more observant of themselves and the world in which they live, or am I trying to impose my worldview? Mm -hmm. That requires a lot of self-restraint and self-reflection. Do you mention that to your patients, your internal thinking, that sometimes you might be biased or you, that you cut yourself, you just cut yourself being biased on something? Very rarely I disclose struggle I may experience when I think that a patient is <laughs> doing something that will backfire in their lives. Mm -hmm. And there are moments when I will disclose and that's when I think that the patient will harm himself or harm others. I think that's my limit. And that's when I really put forward something more than just an intervention or an interpretation. I may disclose. What about you? I think I, I probably talk a little more about my uh, inner process okay. to some patients. Certainly depends on how I feel the patient is functioning. Yeah. And it's not just a question of being stable or unstable. Uh, sometimes I can be more open about my internal thoughts uh, with a stable patient and sometimes with an unstable patient. It's more, I, I, w I wouldn't know exactly how to decipher uh, when I do uh, one thing or another. For instance, when I work with people who have been abused uh, morally or physically, I can sometimes cut myself perceiving them uh, as a pure victim. Yes. And not systematically. Uh, I want to insist on that. I don't think it should be done systematically. But sometimes I do mention out loud, I think when I was saying this or as I was listening to you, I felt like it, it was difficult to perceive you uh, in a different way than this mm -hmm. or that. And I try to bring it up in a sense that it's not just a state for me, mm -hmm. but more as a way to see if the patient is going to react to that. The reaction I hope I would get would be something like, oh yeah, I often feel like people behave with me like this or oh yeah, I felt like that too, sometimes I'm stuck. Like, yes. And this way I, I hope to um, unlock something that I felt trapped in. Mm -hmm. Again, it's not systematic. Well, I guess what you're saying is that the intervention allows a patient to widen their perspective. That's my hope. Yes, that's the hope. 
Sometimes it actually uh, closes things down. I see. When I intervene like that and it's actually not a good intervention, I can feel like patients are mm-hmm. just looking at me with wide eyes and be like, what the what hell the are you, hell talking, are you like? talking about? <laughs> yeah, you're, you're crazy. Yeah. But sometimes I found that to be extremely helpful. It's funny about the question about how whether they're going to hurt themselves because I learned from some of my patients that the best way for them to end up hurting themselves was for me to express some concerns mm-hmm. it's not like that with everybody but i realize that with some of my some of the people i'm working with if i get out of my analytic stand in that way yeah if i start worrying and if i stop analyzing yeah actually it makes them freak out if you start worrying yeah if i start worrying and you stop analyzing sometimes you want to say that yeah you want to refrain them from hurting themselves and others around them And actually what I learned is that in certain situations, trying to refrain it will lead to more enacting. Well, in those cases, for example, the one that you have presented about the drug use, I would address the excess as a signal of anxiety. Yeah. It helps reframe that statement. I'm going to do this into what the heck is going on in my life that I feel that I need an excess of this mm-hmm. of course it depends on the patient but i don't think i would disclose in that moment but you were mentioning about how you would or you would say something when you feel like the patient is yes but the example you just presented it feels different to me so what are the examples for you where you would express your judgment if for example uh, a patient begins to have suicidal ideations i always start with the exploration mm-hmm. But I guess I would disclose a little bit more my concern for their life. There is another moment when I disclose is when I have a patient who would concretize a symbol. And what I mean by that is, for example, a patient who has somatoform symptoms and experiencing something in the body, whatever the experience has been ruled out by physicians as having organic cause, Therefore, we understand what they experience in the body as a symbol, but they want to take the symbol away, like surgery. In those moments, I have disclosed that I'm concerned. And how did that work out? In some cases, it allows uh, the patient to slow down, which is what I hope for. Mm-hmm. In one other case that I remember, the patient went ahead. And then once it was uh, the symbol became concrete, the patient patient left treatment. Yeah, it's a fuck you. <laughs> exactly. So, <laughs> so yeah. But it's true that sometimes the judgment from the analyst can be seems to be experienced yes. by patients. Well, that's supportive. my hope when I disclose, or in fact, it's my hope whenever I do an intervention and make an intervention mm-hmm. that I'm being not only analyzing but also caring and supporting. And for some people, it's unbearable. That's true. If we understand that too late, then they act out because we did act out. I agree. And one one last thing is in terms of judgment, it's uh, judgment is feel like is already there. The way we use theories. I mean, you and I we try to mm-hmm. um, use different theories depending on the moment. But we know people who are very much attached to one or two theories. I feel like it would be a blind spot for us to not consider that the way we use theory is also a judgment. Mm-hmm. I don't use Jung so much because every time I read it at first I'm okay with it and then start talking about mm-hmm. spiritual things and mythical things that I don't connect with and yes. 
when a patient talks to me, I don't no. decipher what they say through that lens mm -hmm. at all. And that is a judgment. If we are rigidly contained by the theory, I guess in part what's going on is that we need to feel protected by the theory because otherwise we would feel too vulnerable instead of using the theory as an aid in the process. Mm -hmm. There's probably something to it. Yeah. For instance, today we emphasize a lot less on the um, Oedipal complex than we used to. Some people even say we don't even need to uh, talk about it. When you go with uh, Lacanians, it's only or mostly, uh, I guess, uh, almost only about language. Mm -hmm. Yeah. There are judgments. Do you have a thought about how you integrate your choices in terms of theory? Again, going back to what I was saying, self-reflection, in my case, my self-reflective process has become an invitation to be supervised by people with different uh, theoretical orientations. So I become vulnerable in front of these people. So it is a way to disrupt what could be my rigidity around a theory if the theory becomes the container of my own anxiety. To be supervised by people of s such wide and different perspective has been very helpful. Okay. Any thoughts about that, about the way you integrate theory? I often wonder why I use one theory and not the other. Unlike you, I didn't challenge myself too much with supervision. <laughs> I found people I appreciated and I stayed with them. I think I have other things to worry in my life, but I admire your position. <laughs> but in our daily practice, I think uh, I switch from one theory to another very quickly. I don't think I uh, use one more than others. I mean, I use it in terms of why would I prefer this theory for this patient at this moment, etc. And, mm -hmm. and sometimes I catch myself uh, realizing that with one patient, I really unusually used one theory instead instead of another and mm -hmm. what is going on with that yeah. why is this theory used more than others is this a defense is this because it speaks more about something that i'm unconsciously connected to but without really understanding why etc i think i switch once i get a better sense of my patient's level of organization meaning if the patient's in the neurotic in the neurotic side of the spectrum or borderline or have some psychotic features or traits having supervision from different perspectives has helped me focus on what the patient needs not so much on what i need I don't know if I would advise people to do that, but I have a very loose connection to theory. I mean, I really think it's completely necessary, but I also think it's a fairy tale that we are uh, talking to ourselves. Like, it's a tool. It's not an end. Well, of course, yes, of course. It is a tool, but it is not the spirit of what we do. No. Mm -hmm. I don't owe anything to theory. That's how I uh, experience it. And now let's move to another comment. Someone else pointed out another thing about the judgment. So at some point, I say that, uh, in quote, there is a need for judgment. What do I mean by that? Well, what I meant is that I feel like sometimes judgment is also an expression of values. And as uh, we just mentioned before, sometimes patients feel uh, supported by our expression of values. It doesn't mean that it's, uh, it's the end goal of therapy. It doesn't mean that we should just leave it there without keeping that in mind and trying to analyze what happened and how it was supportive and what, uh, what doors uh, it closed. But sometimes patients are too distressed for me 
I would say. Maybe I'm wrong and maybe I should have let them um, in this situation longer and things would have been okay. But I decide to express judgment and then the value that is expressed, I think, uh, might have a containing effect that helps the therapy to go on. Can you give us an example? Someone has been abused sexually by uh, the member of a family and you can express two judgments. Your patient is going to say, uh, we mentioned that in the podcast on forgiveness, uh, this is all my fault. Mm -hmm. person was right to abuse me. I mean, I make it more simple, but basically that's the discourse. And then I can say, well, I think you're wrong. Mm -hmm. I think uh, the other person had uh, their responsibility and um, I think it's interesting that you are offering such a subjective position. Mm -hmm. And it can actually go the other way around. I hated it. I don't know. And then I can say, well, maybe in some ways you hated it, but uh, it's very possible that a part of you also was very attached to it. Mm -hmm. I perceive those moments as an expression of judgment. I see. Sometimes patients will not connect with you and experience it as, a, as an aggression. And sometimes patients are going to be relieved because all of a sudden you allow them to connect with the part of themselves that, uh, as you said, that they split. Mm -hmm. I guess we're getting into this terrain when we have to define if by judgment we mean what is right and what is wrong. Is that what you're saying or trying to communicate to the patient? Yeah, that it's not right when you uh, are a young boy and um, someone of an older generation uh, physically uh, penetrates you. Okay, I hear you. Uh -huh. I think that answered the comments. So let's move to another comment. So the question of the social use of possible unconscious fantasies. So... Mm -hmm. Uh, someone in the comment saying how appreciated how uh, important it was to quote the comment we made that it's not because someone might have a, mm -hmm. an unconscious fantasy to be raped or to business or to be treated in one way or another that it's no excuse for the perpetrator to act on it. We're making a distinction between what is a fantasy and what happens in the quote-unquote real world and the fantasies are driven by unconscious forces that we want to analyze. Mm -hmm. In that sense, there's no morality about the fantasy in itself because what we want to understand is what are the driving forces that put in motion the fantasy. On the other hand, in the interactions between human beings, there are actions or inactions that lead to harm. So that's a completely different subject. Yes. And oftentimes, and way too often, people uh, use this excuse, and we can even find that in uh, psychoanalytic uh, realms of, uh, oh yeah, but it was his or her uh, unconscious desire, it's not my fault, they uh, push me to do this, they push me to do that. Uh, no. No. Yeah. It's important to not use possible, and uh, as, as we did before, and insist again, possible unconscious desire. Because uh, it's striking to me how people think that they are right, that they know the other's uh, unconscious desire mm -hmm. or fantasies, like uh, is it not even their patients or like even when it's your patient, you you have a very unclear sense of uh, your patient's unconscious fantasies. Otherwise, uh, mm -hmm. yeah, this is, would go mm -hmm. very very fast. So that uh, mm -hmm. is something very important to keep in mind, uh, and especially in psychoanalysis, where uh, people are supposed to know. Yeah. Well, I guess this is it for today. Thank you, Gregoire. And we would like to thank our audience as they listen to our podcasts. Thank you very much. And we will see you next month for a whole new podcast on uh, um, the Naked Soup. See you then. 
Until then, this is Edgar Danielson. This is Grégoire Pierre. Thank you for listening to discussions on psychoanalysis. Mm-hmm.